Chapter 1 Restless and dissatisfied, something essential is missing from my life. If God is a possibility, I need to know whatever can be known of him. If he's good and loving, as many believe, there would be everything to gain from making contact with him. If he's wanting to help us where we are, we could certainly do with some help. If he exists, it would be much better to live with him than without him, or even perhaps against him. We need reliable information. Science, history and careful thought must all have a part to play in this most extraordinary quest for evidence of God. Wherever he may be, or whatever he may be like, our concern is to know the truth. We must use any means we can to discover it. Some might see this as a spiritual journey. Pressing on through the mist that obscures every spiritual path, we will keep a lookout for landmarks as we go. Things we can be sure of, whilst continuing to explore areas of uncertainty. Gradually we must establish what we can firmly accept and depend upon. Feelings at this point are probably quite mixed. A measure of discontent that our destination seems so far off. Yet undeniable excitement that we're finally on our way. After a first step, there should be definite progress, with happy discoveries along the road, some poignant moments and perhaps some unexpected surprises. Encouragement we shall certainly find in the Bible, for in its pages we will meet many people on the same road, and some who have travelled far. Someone has said, when we read about the great men and women of the Scriptures, it's not so much their courage or even the power of their exploits that grips us. Rather, the intimacy with which they walked with God stirs within us a passion to know him as they knew him. Then in due course we will try speaking in words to God himself, hoping he might hear us and respond. The Bible says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We'll attempt this and see what happens. Certainly we are a mixed company, different in many ways from the world around us. Some of us embarked on this quest long ago and are still searching. Others are setting out this very day. Some have no religious roots and would like to investigate the possibility of God. Others used to believe, but lost touch somewhere along the way. Some have set out with keen energy and expectation. Others pursue their course with a measure of wistfulness, increasingly faint and erratic as the years go by. Some are dissatisfied, perhaps sadly discouraged, seeing small signs of spiritual reality. A few may even have lost hope and are near to giving up. Speaking honestly, we will learn to love and trust and support one another. Hard questions and personal challenges must be faced if we intend to uncover all the truth. But we'll face these together without fear or shame, helping one another along the way.
To start with, we need some clear evidence we can depend on. It may be nearer to us than we think. If a seagull in flight were not so common, we would stand amazed and watch it soar. If the world contained a single daisy, we would gaze astonished at its beauty. If the night sky were suddenly, for the first time, revealed to human sight, we'd be overwhelmed by its glorious immensity. As it is, we're too often blind to the marvel of familiar things. If we could stop the car as the sun sinks behind the distant mountains, we might come to see our problems in a very different light. If there were only time to linger at the lakeside and hear the wind in the reeds, we might sense a presence profoundly comforting and calm. If we could just pause among the butterflies in a sunny woodland clearing, we might enjoy a brief foretaste of paradise. As it is, we're always busy, too busy to stop, too busy to become aware. Day by day, year by year, we do what's expected. Duty calls and demands our full attention. The working day passes quickly and commercial entertainments exhaust our leisure hours. One writer claims, wonder is the prelude to knowledge. He is right, and if we don't yet know anything about God, it may be that we've lost, or never had, a sense of wonder. What we lack is not a faith to believe, but a moment to marvel, and half an hour to think. The first step in our quest is not a step at all, but a choice to sit still for a little while and observe. Awareness of the divine begins with wonder. Pause to look closely at the natural world and you may be moved to whisper, this is the Lord's doing and it's marvellous in our eyes. But wonder, on its own, will not take us very far. You may vaguely wonder all your life and never grasp the significance of a single thing. For many of us, indeed, the needed stimulus to search and find comes through discontent. It's our restlessness that moves us on. Human discoveries are generally made by people unhappy with the way things are. Weary of stress and conflict, disillusioned with the bustle, the noise and the old routine. Sorrowful, perhaps, alienated and misunderstood, longing for reality and almost ready to despair. At this very point of weakness and humiliation, I realise there must be a better way to live. Suddenly, I'm resolved to find it. If awareness begins with wonder, and searching follows from discontent, then knowledge grows through careful inquiry. With an open heart and an open mind, 
we must sift the evidence for clear facts we can depend upon. Taking nothing for granted, ignoring all that is commonly believed and accepted, we must decide for ourselves what we can personally accept and believe. With an honest mind and a humble heart, we're heading out in search of God, looking for clues, seeking for traces of his presence wherever they may be found. Few people are unmoved by the glory, the majesty, the intricate detail of the natural world. The oxygen factory silently at work in every leaf. The remarkable properties of water. The strange enigma of electricity. The glowing light of a firefly. The adhesive properties of an insect's feet the unseen potential in an acorn, the formation of a butterfly from the residue of a caterpillar. These are the so-called marvels of nature. But you yourself are more marvellous than any of them. The human ear, the human eye, the lungs, the heart and brain and reproductive system. Study these carefully and you'll never again take yourself for granted. It seems highly unlikely that such fantastic machines could have fallen into place by chance. We do not see it happening today, and have no proof that it happened in the past. Wherever complex mechanisms are found, a creative intelligence has been at work, conscious, intentional and capable. In our experience, design is always evidence of a designer. Who was it then that devised the molecular structures? Who conceived the electrical impulses and chemical reactions of the nervous system? Who wrote the genetic codes determining the shape and function of every living thing? If there is a program, there must surely have been a programmer. If there is writing, there must have been a writer. Evidence of design in us and in the world around us is too consistent and too abundant for an open-minded person to deny the probability of an intelligent architect and engineer. In fact, no human invention gives us anything like the same sense of awe and delight as the universe we live in. For no human invention is as vast or as tiny, and none is so exquisite. The natural world is both functional and beautiful, and the closer we look, the more complex the functions appear, and the more astonishing the beauty. The laws and processes underlying all of science point to an architect of awesome imaginative intelligence a creator whose universe extends in light years beyond human measurement, and yet attends to details so small that our instruments cannot yet distinguish them. And in all this, he reveals himself as a visionary artist and a lover of loveliness. But once we suppose that there is a designer, we urgently need to know more about him.
can we discover anything definite about his character and his intentions? Is he still involved in caring for his creation? If this astonishing universe has a maker, where is he? What is he like? Can we actually make contact with him? Then at a more personal level, is he aware of me? Does he care at all about me? Is he wanting to help me in any way? In general, we receive confused or uncertain answers to such questions, leaving us year after year perplexed and undecided. We may even give up asking until honesty insists on raising the same question again. Does anyone know for sure? Can we discover the truth about the creator of the universe? What evidence is there? We often make this harder than it needs to be by looking in the wrong place. You'll find the most accessible traces of your maker not in the sky, or in a church, or in a book, but in yourself. Examine more carefully what you are like, and you'll understand a great deal about your designer. If there is a God, and if he made the world, then you are certainly the finest thing in his creation. He could think of nothing better to make than a human being. Here we have some definite information about him. He's the sort of person who would choose to invent you. Every engineer will value the capabilities he gives to his greatest and most complex invention. The machine can do what it does because he knew in his own mind what it would do if he made it that way. In this sense, it's an expression of his own personality and purpose. It does what he himself would like to do if he were where it is. But while a single invention may perform one task well, the inventor is capable of far more. He can choose the shape and size of his invention, decide exactly how it works, adapt it for varied circumstances, repair the machine if it goes wrong, and make many other inventions too. Does this, we might wonder, provide us with any clues to the character of God? Firstly, if he made us, we'd expect him to have capabilities far exceeding ours. But secondly, if we're indeed his finest invention, we'd expect him to have a personality and purpose similar to our own. We can do what he would like to do if he were in our place. The earliest of the Bible writers came to exactly this conclusion and none of them found any reason to dispute it. They saw evidence that God created man in his own image. In other words, God created us to be like himself. He made us capable of doing what he does. But are we simply looking at ourselves and imagining there is a God like us? Of course, that's exactly what we would do if we were made like him. But it doesn't mean he's just imaginary. We can imagine something we've never seen and then find it is exactly what we imagined it to be. This is very helpful. 
It means that you can learn a great deal about God from what you know of yourself. If you can see and hear, it seems likely that he too can see and hear. If you can think and remember, so too can he. If you have a desire to speak and communicate, so does he. If you can plan for the future, so can he. If you feel happy and sad, so does he. If you enjoy some things and dislike some things, so indeed does he. And what's more, if his capabilities exceed ours, he can do all these things far better than we can. Yet looking more closely at ourselves, we may not be quite so pleased with what we find. We may even have reason to hope that God is not like us at all. Not like us at all? Why is that? The world around us is both astonishingly wonderful and deeply perplexing. To study it with an open mind is to be convinced there is an intelligence behind it all, and indeed a good and benevolent intelligence. Every biological organ is perfect in form and function, intricately conceived to fulfil its necessary role. Every physical process plays its essential part in the fantastic machine we call planet Earth. Creation itself has been lovingly conceived and constructed. But then we look more closely and receive a terrible shock. Every living thing is damaged in some way. We see beautiful creatures suffering horrible diseases. Tranquil oceans swept by tsunami waves. Peaceful cities destroyed by earthquakes. Farmlands scarred by floods and fires. Populations wiped out by famines and plagues. And in the end, every living thing so wonderfully made grows old and feeble, endures illness and disease, then finally and inevitably dies. An onlooker might suppose a vandal has been at work, and this may not be far from the truth. Creation, so perfect in design and construction, has been wrecked, disfigured and left in disarray. Good and evil did not cooperate in creation. The evidence we have shows that good came first and was later corrupted by evil. We do not see a bad design anywhere, but we see every good design menaced in some way by something or someone that distresses and despoils it. Who has done this? There seem to be powers of evil at loose in this world, enemies to all that is good, aliens who played no part in its original design, rebel forces in opposition to its maker. As human beings, we suffer as much, and perhaps far more, than any other creature. Every organ in our body is vulnerable to damage, disease, degeneration and ultimately death. At birth we are like a brand new car, bright and shining as it leaves the factory. But then it develops mechanical faults, suffers bumps and scratches, succumbs to rust and finally ends up as scrap. 
or like a beautiful house, planned and built with exquisite care and skill, whose foundations are then washed away, its beams infected with dry rot, its windows broken and its fittings looted. Before long, without repair, the house will collapse and fall. That's what we're like, beautifully designed, but now in a tragic state of disrepair. But the problem runs deeper than this. It touches our personality, our heart and mind and secret motivations. Every member of the human race is both awesome and embarrassing. We know this from our own experience. We simply do not live up to our expectations. We have ideals, but fail to follow them. We make promises, but do not keep them. We know what is right, and yet do wrong. We long to be proud of our achievements, but then tell lies to cover our shame. We've done things we would much rather forget. We've caused trouble to ourselves and to others. This is our human predicament. We're familiar with it. But what can it teach us about our Maker? Out of all this human chaos, can we learn anything definite about God? From the stones that remain, an archaeologist can tell you much about a building that has long since tumbled down. Even the wreck of a car may be identified by colour and by make, and its value at the time of impact ascertained. Every ruin reveals something of its former glory and offers clues to the character of its architect and builder. Granted that the image of God in us has been spoiled and marred, there should be clues amidst the wreckage revealing something about us and about our Maker too. Despite the human damage that we've suffered in body and in mind, we'd expect to find some traces of his personality in us still. But how can we identify those traces and reconstruct what once was there? On rare occasions, you're moved to behave better than you ever learned from your parents or your school or church. Occasionally, you'll surprise yourself by being more patient or more generous than you thought possible. You do something good and considerate when nobody's watching and no one will ever find out. Then you're compelled to conclude, this is not me, this is God in me. In what you know to be your best moments, you come closest to discerning the character of God. More often we wish we'd been better than we were. At the same time, there are people we meet whose kindness and helpfulness, far beyond the call of duty, leave us humbled and amazed. We distinctly see something of God in them. Where does this take us? If we gather up all we admire in people we know, and the very best of our own highest ideals, ignoring all we dislike in others and ourselves. 
it's possible to picture the kind of people we were meant to be, and so recover a certain knowledge of our Maker. There's much to be discerned in this way, but it's intensely personal. Nobody can prove it to you. It's something you find out for yourself. For some people, it's immediately obvious. For others, it will take more effort, more time, and more consideration. What progress have we made so far in our quest for the truth about God? In our quieter moments, we've sensed the peace that passes understanding. Design we've observed in the natural world. Traces of glory we've identified in our own humanity. But there's far more evidence than that, and we must study it carefully. What exactly is said, for example, in that amazing anthology of miscellaneous writings we call the Bible? This remarkable book was compiled by 40 or more authors, separated by oceans, mountains and deserts, during a period of 1,600 years. But their contrasting circumstances and experiences convinced them all of one thing, that the creator of this world cares about his creation and wants to communicate with it. They claimed to have personal experience of this. We'll see what we can learn from them. Many people would say the most interesting character in the Bible is Jesus Christ. He was known, of course, as a great teacher and often spoke about the love of God. He devoted his life to helping people with problems. And those who knew him best believed they saw the character of God in him more clearly than in any other human being. They wrote a careful record of what happened in those days and we'll take a close look at it. Heading into the unknown is, for anyone, a risky venture. We must take care how we go. The signposts we've found so far give some assurance we may be on the right track. If so, we should expect more confirmation in the stages that lie ahead. Indeed, the nearer we get to our goal, the clearer it should become.